the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all. One of the things, for example, that I've always said is, I don't want to do this without our trans siblings. You know, if it, if we can't have the tea as part of it, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. But you know, there's a lively conversation out there. But I know what inclusive means. And that's a core value. What I would say as well is that, you know, in a relatively small space, you know, this is a kind of a starter museum. You can't do everything in one go, but we'll be changing things. You know, if your story is not represented today, come back tomorrow. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to Matt Kane Meets on Virgin Radio Pride. That was Joseph Galliano, who's the co-founder and director of Queer Britain the UK's recently opened LGBTQ plus national museum. Before that, he worked in the charity sector, including as deputy CEO of Outstanding. And before that, he was a journalist and editor of Gay Times. So we've got lots to talk about. I'll be speaking to Joseph right after this. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to me, Matt Kane, and today I am meeting Joseph Galliano. Joseph, we are in your amazing museum, Queer Britain. Congratulations. It's been open a few months now. How's it, how's it been going for you? First of all, lovely to see you, Matt. Lovely to see you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's been amazing. I mean, we've had about 12,000 people come through the door in the first two months that we've been opened. Uh, we have tears in the uh, visitors in tears every day uh, for good reasons because people feel like they're being seen, and I think people are sort of bowled over by the quality of this as a queer space um, that really kind of holds holds people up and says, you know, you deserve something of quality, and I think that's what. That's what I hope people feel. You also said, I read an interview that you did before the museum opened, and you said that your aim was to complete the nation's family tree. Do you feel what it sounds like? I've only seen a bit of the museum so far, but it sounds like, from what you're saying from the reactions, that you have. It's, well, I don't think we've completed the family tree, and it's a rather grand um, goal, but I think a, a laudable one and one that we should be attempting to do. Um, we've been collecting oral histories, filmed oral histories. Um, we've been um, pulling together exhibitions. And, and actually, we're getting more information every day about the stuff that's on the walls, which is, which is wonderful, because you know, we talk about this being a museum that we want people to, not to come to see, but to be seen in. And literally, we're having... Well, in fact, I saw it happen. Somebody walked into the, into the gallery um, last week saw a picture of themselves on the wall from the 1970s and so was able to fill in some more of the information so we can then adapt the labels we know more about the images that um and that kind of adding to the wealth of knowledge about our communities i just i just thrilling and in terms of all these thrills is, is there a particular element or exhibit that gives you the biggest thrill or moves you the most well, <laughs> I love all of my babies. <laughs> um, one of the things in the, this new exhibition, this current exhibition, um, we've got the door of Oscar Wilde's Reading Jail cell. Um, 
it's a very sort of contemplatory object. Um, but then, you know, on top of that, we also have these oh, like really beautiful portraits by a wonderful photographer called Ali Crew of uh, transgender people that look like Vermeers, look like kind of old Dutch masters. An amazing painting of the amazing David Hoyle, a performance artist by the amazing artist Sadie Lee. So, it sounds like you love it all. I do, I do, <laughs> I do. This is, why we, this is why we're here. And how about the name of the museum? Mm. I'd love to know how you settled on it and whether there was much debate because anecdotally I know some people who are still resistant, yeah. possibly older members of our community, to the word queer. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, it's difficult to find a way of including us all, isn't it, and bringing us all together under the same umbrella. Could you yeah. talk to us about that? Yeah, and actually, you've used some of the same language that I use when thinking about it, which was if we think about the acronym, there's not really, you can't take any other letter that is an inclusive kind of umbrella. But, you know, we recognize as well that there is still pain in some sections of the communities as a result of how that word has been weaponized. And we want to be actually part of the conversation about that. And we also want to be part of the taking some of that last sting out and owning it. Well, um, yeah, you do. I mean, we can all take the sting out on an individual level, but actually as an institution embracing the word, mm. that is really going to take the sting out of it, isn't it? I thought so. I thought so. And if you look at the work you know, we've been doing here, if you look at the work that um, brilliant, brilliant new space called Queer Circle, I certainly know that both of us as organisations are embracing that as... Uh, challenging but joyful. And how about, I mean, you've obviously touched on this, talking about the name, but we do have a very diverse community, which is one of the brilliant things about it, but it can be challenging to um, reflect, represent everybody, all the diversity under the umbrella. Mm. Is this something that's important to you and how have you gone about it? You're smiling. Yeah, because it's absolutely key. It's central. You know, we, you know, uh, w one of the things, for example, that I've always said is I don't want to do this without our trans siblings. You know, if, it, if we can't have the tea as part of it, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Was there any pressure not to have the trans element? No, not, not, not from within our organization certainly it's not something we've really faced but you know there's a there's a there's a, a, a lively conversation out there but i know what inclusive means and i that's a core value yeah what i would say as well is that you know in a relatively small space you know this is a kind of a starter museum you can't do everything in one go but we'll be changing things you know if your story is not represented today Come back tomorrow. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to talk about all that a bit later. I would love to know now, when, you're, when you are setting it up and you're thinking about inclusivity, um, do you have any kind of target audience in mind? Because you know you often hear institutions... Yeah, everyone. Yeah, well, that, is that not difficult in itself? Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. But the, the trouble is, is if... Like, I always call this, this is an LGBTQ plus museum for all regardless of sexuality or gender identity, and that includes our heterosexual counterparts, because if we're just talking to ourselves, again, why bother? You know, and you know, we all come from families, we exist in a society, there is no them and us. Totally, totally. Why do you think it's important for heterosexual cisgender people to know about our history? Because that's where hearts get changed. 
and you don't talk to people who... The challenge is not talking to people who have your back and agree with you. The challenge is bringing people on side who maybe didn't start off in that position. And, you know, why not embrace that rather than scare it off? Oh, that's interesting. But to be clear, though, in this space, we own our stories. Yes. And we're telling our stories as a, as a set of communities. But we welcome in. That's a brilliant aim, but it does pose problems. I mean, if you're allowing people in who, obviously not out-and-out homophobes, but um, people who maybe want to challenge some of their own ideas that don't sit well with their community... It's quite. I mean, it's a very important aim, but it's quite difficult, well, isn't it? Well, uh, you know, it, I don't think we don't do things because they're not easy. I think we do think we try and do things because it's the right thing to do, um, and because it's more exciting. Isn't it more exciting to have a space where you're trying to actually welcome all of those, welcome all of those people? Now that said, the safety of our visitors and uh, guests, you know, and staff. Um, volunteers is paramount, you know, so you know, we're not talking about having people in who are violently loud homophobes, you know, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> and what about the obvious target audience, queer people ourselves? Mm-hmm. What would you say, so you've said why it's important for cis um, hetero people to know our history, what about queer people ourselves? Because pretty much every queer person I know is interested in our history, actually. But you do hear some people, younger ones, saying, why do I need to know about that? You know, um, what do you, why do you think it's important? I think there's many reasons why that's important. I think back about myself. I think back about myself as a 14-year-old who was scared and anxious and depressed about the idea of being gay and isolated with no sense of seeing myself in history and the thing actually there were two things that really really broke through and made me better one of which was that I found a copy of an Oscar Wilde book from 1909 with some copper plate writing in the front of it where the person who'd owned it in the beginning of the last century had written a poem that concluded with the lines one last fight and I'll laugh to scorn the scoffers of my fate and I will conquer and it had this this word and I will conquer underlined and I knew who this person was the minute I read that it was like that is a gay man from the early 1900s who had to kind of emphasize his defiance hidden in the margins of this book oh I love that and have you still got that book yeah and in fact I use it for speeches and it's going to be on display it's on display in this this exhibition as well with that open at those pages and that was, the, that was literally the first moment where I went, ah, okay, so we have a deeper and richer history and heritage that I, you know, I, than I thought. Which uh, actually in those days was a revelation to a find total that Total revelation. We didn't know, did we? And then the other, the other thing around the same time was um, coming across a copy of Tom Robinson's Glad to be Gay. And that filling me with a kind of um, defiance that like, you know, not only did we exist but actually could also be angry about the way that our siblings had been treated and that we were treated. If you don't know about where you've come from, how can you protect the gains that you've been gained? How can you protect what we have? And things have shifted very quickly for LGBT people, um, thanks to people like Ted Brown and the first kissing marchers. Um, 1972 and 
they have really set in train this, this, this cultural shift, but it's happened very quickly. And I think of it as that we stand on a very thin meniscus of history. And if we don't guard that, we could lose it very quickly. That's brilliant. Um, I want to take a quick break on those really stirring words. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Matt Cain meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane, and today I am thrilled to be chatting to Joseph Galliano, the director of Queer Britain. So, Joseph, you were talking to us before the break all about why it's important for heterosexual, cisgender people, plus queer people ourselves, to know about our history. Was this the motivation for you setting up the museum. I'd love to know where the idea first came from and what kind of got you going. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've always wanted to see, but um, actually on the 40th anniversary of the partial decriminalization of gay male sex, um, I was editor at Gay Times at that point, and I was wondering what kind of generation gap has kind of grown up uh, between... It was a mainly men's magazine, and it was obviously... this This was the lens we were looking at it through what generation gap had developed. And so what we did is we pulled together a small group of um, four adults, four men who, had already, who were already adults in 1967 and four who weren't yet born in 1967, yeah. just to see what, kind of, what they knew about each other's life. And it turned out it was very little. Actually, there was very little kind of understanding about the pressures that each had experienced. And also two of the younger men didn't know that it had ever been illegal. Now, when we, you know, the older guys, it was like a slap in the face. And when we thought about how to frame it, we said, um, actually, first of all, thank you. Didn't you do a brilliant job that they can get on with their lives in a much more free way than you, you know, you didn't have to live on the barricades like that. Absolutely. Um, But secondly, if you're not hearing about your histories in a a meaningful, consistent way in schools, in colleges, amongst your peer groups, in the popular culture. How do you know what questions to ask if you don't know what questions to ask? Well, also, I mean, I've been going to museums since my teens. Um, we were slightly erased from the historical record, yeah. weren't we? Representation slightly, in museums. Slightly. <laughs> Representation in museums was just not there. It just wasn't good enough. Yeah, and it's getting better. Um, and in fact, you know, if you look at the work of uh, somebody like Dan Vo, who, I love Dan Vo. Well, Dan works with us as our head of learning and engagement as well, uh, as well as all of the kind of work that he and um, that he's been helping to lead amongst a you know, group of people. You know, not exclusively Dan, but uh, uh, he's closest to us. It, it's moved on a lot from kind of yes, but we don't we don't talk about this, do we? Let's talk about the problems. Um, in specific to documenting queer history, because first of all, you had, we don't talk about this, we don't talk about this, as you say. People, um, mainstream audiences, didn't want to hear our stories. Also, um, if you think about queer people from the past, when they would have, when it was a criminal act, they would have spent most of their time destroying all evidence. And also it's difficult when you've got... um, Labels changing. I mean, you know, I always run into trouble when I describe people like Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci as being gay because it wasn't so much an identity and they wouldn't have used that word. They had same-sex relations. So 
What do you think of all these well, I issues? Think, you know, I think, I think that that shouldn't get in the way of celebrating and holding those people up. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in the minutiae. I mean, a, another more experienced museum person might might shake their fist at me, but I kind of sometimes think if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, then maybe it was a duck. But, you know, I, I probably wouldn't say that at a museum conference. <laughs> there is one other thing, which was that when people were ashamed of their queer relatives, um, very, very usual to have their diaries disposed yes, of, totally. their personal effects disposed of, and all of that evidence let lost which is why the work that um, places like the Bishopsgate Institute, who also hold our collection, you know, do such a great job in, in, in making sure that this stuff has got a place to go to. And also how you know, I would like us to be able to contribute to some of that as well. So did mm. you worry that with this lack of evidence that queer stories were being lost? Yes. And that actually with queer people who had been out um, getting older, if yeah. you didn't act... Yeah. Well, really, so and that's, that's, that's the emergency, isn't it? Because because so much of this lives in the is, exists in the living record, and you know, and also if you're thinking about uh, the under-recording of stories, particularly if you look at like how under-recorded in the mainstream uh, queer people of colour's stories have been, or trans people's stories have been, you know, bad enough at the most privileged end of this. Uh, LGBTQ plus acronym to be, you know, a, a white gay man and still have your stories under under threat. It goes to show the scale of the problem, I think. So when you were putting the museum together, knowing that there was this emergency in your own words, you must have felt under a lot of pressure. Um, what was the journey like? Did you get any resistance to the idea? Did anybody just tell you you were being too ambitious or daft? One of the best things anyone ever said to me, and it was a, it was a voice I carried around that really, really helped increase my resilience. I went to see Michael Cashman, and at the end of our meeting, and he, um, he gave me a hug, and he held me by the shoulders, and he said to me, people are going to tell you that this is too difficult. And then he put his finger on the end of my nose, and he went, don't listen to them. <laughs> and I've carried that with me. Did that keep you going then when you heard Michael's words? It really, it really did. It, and it, it, it put a, a voice in my head that I respected and that has earned the right to be able to offer advice, you know. And I, I carried it well, close. Interesting that he said, people are going to tell you this is too difficult. I remember when I first heard about this, I thought, oh my God, what an amazing thing to be doing that. It's going to be so difficult. Yeah. What was it like just on the kind of level of logistics, getting the money together and all that kind of stuff. You know, chipping away, chipping away. And, you know, one of the things that was really key to this, and in fact, this is something that Lisa Power says, uh, said in the, in the speech that she gave at the opening night, because she's one of our trustees and we're so lucky with some of the people that we have around us. And she says that one of the reasons that she got involved with this project as a trustee is because um, when these projects have been talked about before, People have been talking about what was going to go on the walls, whereas what we were talking about was how are we going to get the walls in the first place? And so we approached it from a, a very hard-nosed kind of like business, business planning kind of approach, uh, developed partnerships. You know, we had some great partners that came on board, like uh, M&C Saatchi and Levi's, who all kind of like helped put their shoulder to the wheel. Um, 
And that's a really, imp I mean, you don't get any glory for that because um, people don't like to celebrate that side of things, but it's really important, yeah. isn't it? It is, it is. And, and also, I think the importance with these sort of partnerships, and you, you have to get the feel for whether people are coming from the right place, you know, what's their kind of like history as an organization in terms of how they've treated LGBT people or issues before, um, or inclusion issues before. Are they looking for glory for themselves or are they actually doing the thing where they genuinely say, and actually both of those companies, when I first met them, they went, this is amazing. How can we help? What do you need? And so, you know, when I, when I met Saatchi, they were, we, um, I'd, been, I'd spent maybe nine months working out of cafes and, you know, marching, marching around the town, taking every meeting I could possibly get. But I didn't have a base. You know, we didn't have any resources. It was just me padding around town, knocking on doors. What MNC Saatchi did was they said, do you need somewhere to work? And they welcomed us in. They gave us office space. They gave us the sort of facilities to work out of. They never asked for anything from us. And they've only ever built up what we've done and made what we've done slicker and better and more thoughtful and built a team around us. So I love them. Just as you're talking, I'm getting, a, I knew it was going to be a difficult test. I'm getting a glimpse of just how difficult it was putting this together. Okay, we're going to have to take a quick break. Stand by. We'll be back in a few minutes. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. I am Matt Kane, and today I'm delighted to be chatting to Joseph Galliano, who is the director of Queer Britain. Now, Joe, let's talk about your story because <laughs> you're quaking slightly. <laughs> Before you started working for Queer Britain, you worked in the charity sector. You were a journalist. I said at the beginning in your intro that you were editor of Gay Times, for example. So a lot of your professional activity was aimed at queer people. I'd love to know what it was that politicised you and made you engage with our community? Because you talked about the moment of finding the Oscar Wilde book and listening to the Tom Robinson song. How did you decide how you wanted to channel your passion for queer culture? God, that's such a difficult question because it's not, there's, there's not a moment. There's a collection of moments and realisations and, uh, and I think there's, there's a deep urge and a kind of a need for the embrace it's about the embrace. You know, I want to be embraced and I also want to see other people embraced. I think a lot of queer yeah. people are like that. We want, we, I mean, people talk about artists, stars, they want to be loved. I've never, ha I've never thought of it like that, but a lot of queer people, we want the embrace, don't we? Exactly, exactly. And it's the acceptance and, you know, inclusion is not just the buzzword. What does it mean? You know, inclusion, I want to be included and I don't want to see people being excluded because there was a quote on a Tom Robinson record and I think it said freedom is indivisible if one oh, person's yeah, not yeah, free yeah. then no one's free yeah. so to want the embrace as you've said we have to go through feeling excluded ourselves what was your upbringing like where were you born and brought up and what kind of um, understanding did you develop of gay men in particular just when you were discovering that you were one I don't remember there being any sort of gay role models or anybody sort of visibly gay in my life. Was this the growing 80s? Up. So I was born in 1971 in Wimbledon, brought up in Surrey mainly. First part of our life, single parent family with so me, my mum and my, my, my lovely brother. 
you know, it's easy to talk about our families, but, you know, I often, people say to me, how did you know you wanted to do this, that, and the other? It's such a long mm. process of working it out because we didn't have anything to go on. Yeah. We didn't even see gay men, as we were, queer people in the mainstream media or really out in life. But you knew what was in your head. Yeah. Mm. But to work out how you wanted to channel what was in your head into anything that might earn us the embrace, it was, I never thought I'd be able to write queer novels, for example, no. because I'd never read one. Mm. And did you think you'd ever edit a, a, a queer no, magazine as No, it well? didn't occur to me. I didn't even think I'd move to London because when I was growing up in the north of England, everything pre-internet, everything seemed so far away. The other thing is, is it's very easy to sit back from hindsight and say that there was some grand plan here and that this meant something. But I think, I think oftentimes... You're, doing, you're, you're simply doing the most interesting thing that's in front of your feet at yes. the time. Yes, And it's, I don't think it necessarily means more than that. Well, how about um, one of the most interesting mm. things that you've done is editing Gay Times yeah. in the noughties. Can you give us a sense? I mean, obviously things have changed so much in our lifetimes for queer people, gay men, as we are. What was the context when you were editing Gay Times? What were the kind of hot issues that were around? I think in America you had the same-sex marriage... The Defence of Marriage Act was sweeping backwards and forwards. Um, I think there was quite a lot going on. There were some really frightening bills being introduced in Africa. So we were, well, like at that time, there was, as a magazine, we were trying to take a more international view. We were also, I mean, what I was very consciously trying to do was um, reposition the magazine so that it actually it felt celebratory, so that it felt warm. I wanted it to lose some of its anxiety. It's interesting, isn't it, this? Because, you know, I used to edit Attitude, and if you look back at the timelines, it's such a different thing being edited in a different 10-year, 5-year period. Although the funny thing is, is, so I'm working with our head of design and special projects, is a brilliant designer called Mark King, who was also art director on Gay Times uh. for many, many years. In fact, for, for way before my tenure and way after as well. And um, yeah, the conversation that we have quite often, he says... God, it's like doing a big 3D magazine, isn't it? It's just on a grander scale. <laughs> it's interesting thinking back to queer media, gay media, because, you know, talking about running the museum, it's like a 3D magazine. But in those days when you were running Gay Times, the community, or as I remember it, was very much segregated. There wasn't really that much of an understanding of all of us together as queer people. It was gay men, lesbians... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it was very yeah. segregated, wasn't it? And that's one thing that's changed. The community then, the readership you were aiming at compared to the audience you're going for next. Yeah, and I hope it remains open and that those borders don't stay and don't build up again or stay in place. It's much more interesting to have a range of people together. Who wants to just be with people who are just like you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I find when, when you hear people trying to persuade others about the importance of diversity, I'm like, on some basic fundamental level, I've just always understood that difference in your life is enriching, interesting, you know. It's more fun. I know, totally. Like, yeah. But how about, so you talked about, so you were editor of Gay Times when it was the 40th anniversary yeah. of the start of decriminalisation. I was the editor of Attitude when it was... The anniversary of the 50th right, anniversary yeah, yeah, of, of the start so. of decriminalisation. By that stage, there was a growing interest I detected in queer history. When you were doing your anniversary issue and the activities around that, were people as interested in history as they are now? I, I don't think people more broadly 
were interested. I don't think it was quite such a mainstream interest. But yes, there was interest there. I mean, there was the work that kind of earlier, brilliant attempts at trying to set up a museum around that time, around the 40th, which was, I think, led by people like Jack Gilbert and I think Peter Tatchell was involved. So clearly that they were recognising, you know, our histories were important and needed to be recognised. But, but actually what I love now is you get so many of the sort of the cool queer kids they're really into their history. Yeah. Yes, I, yeah, yeah, I just yeah. think that's so lovely. Well, that's the thing I was going to say, even though I've been desperate for this kind of museum since as long as I can remember, this feels like the right time, doesn't it? Would yeah. you say that everything... Because you do need the support of the wider community. You do need financial investment. Mm. Why do you think this is the perfect time for the museum? Well, it's interesting because I have found, that although this has been a gargantuan effort to get us this far, nonetheless, I've been pushing against a lot of open doors, you know, and... and doors that actually people have done some work beforehand for me to, to to be able to push that door open I think we've hit a point where there's been cultural change where as a result of that was it the Harvey Milk quote come out come out wherever you are oh, I and love that one of the most kind of powerful political slogans in history because what it's meant is that you, you can't say anymore queers are monsters that live in the woods outside the village uh, that you can project all of your terrors onto because oh right my brother or my father or my my sister is a lesbian my brother is a, a trans man and well I love them they're not monsters so maybe that's not true and I think that this is where we've come to now fantastic Joseph it is the right time we're going to be talking some more right after this break Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride you're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. This is Matt Kane Meets with me, Matt Kane, and I am thrilled to be meeting today Joseph Galliano in the Queer Britain Museum building. Joseph, tell us, what are your plans? What's the future? Because you've talked about setting the museum up. You've talked about getting the space. You're just at the beginning of your journey, aren't you? Where really, do you yeah. want to take it? So at the moment, this is our kind of starter home. Beautiful starter home. Oh, so you're not going to be staying here. I love this well, starter home. I think home. for, you know, for, for you know, a few years, a few years. But um, we will be working towards, towards getting a permanent space set up that'll be, you know, somewhere on the order of sort of, I mean, four or five times bigger than this is what we're working towards something that can truly sit in that sort of national museum portfolio for the country. That's what the aim is. But right now, what we're doing is essentially we're learning how to run a museum. <laughs> we're building the team. We're welcoming in the public. And we're about to start designing our programming a bit more so that we can actually have um, you know, more talks and more reasons for people to come in and encounter their own stories and also tell us what their stories are as well. And what do you think is um, going forward? What do you think is the right balance between temporary exhibitions and a permanent collection yeah. if you're thinking big? Well, <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's brilliant because you, you, I mean, have you been looking at my business plan? No, if you got, I, no, I'd love to see your business plan though. Is this, is this something you've been yeah, thinking it's, about? Yeah, it, it's absolutely crucial because, you know, what we can't become is something that is just canonical, telling one set of stories that is like, this is, these are the stories. So what we really want to do is have a space that it's about half the space is half of the exhibition space is permanent but evolving, um, and the other half is temporary exhibition space. So we can say to you, Matt, you have this set of stories to tell. How would you like to tell them? Here's the space to tell them in. Your set of communities haven't been represented, but you're sitting on a really interesting well of stories and objects and 
So let's celebrate that for a little while. So that there'll always be things changing up. And what about, you mentioned that one of your priorities when you were at Gear Times was the international picture mm. and perspective, moving things on there. And obviously it's queer Britain, but is there possibly an international role for the museum to play? Because like, you often read about the British Empire exporting homophobic yeah. laws. And yeah. do you feel a responsibility on the international yeah, front? Yeah, and, and actually, interestingly, we call ourselves Queer Britain not because we're inward-looking, but because uh, the ambition is to be the queer museum for Britain and Northern Ireland. And, you know, we can't tell our stories without looking at out, outwards. I mean, for a start, we're a diaspora nation anyway. Our cultural impacts and legal impacts have kind of gone in both directions around the world. So I think it, it behooves us to tell those stories. That, I think, is probably the only time I will use the word behooves. So. <laughs> I don't think I've ever used that word. <laughs> How about um, Pride celebrations? Because this year, as you know, it's the 50th anniversary of the first Pride March in London. Do you think there's any role to play for the museum in Pride celebrations moving forward? Uh, yes, because I think it's a, you know, and I couldn't tell you exactly what that role is other than, you know, wanting to be a sort of catalytic community resource. The thing about Pride is that it does, you know, we want it to be Pride every month for yeah, a start yeah. in the same way that we want it to be History Month every month. But it, it, does, it does create a kind of like a catalytic moment through the year to gather stories and community thoughts together and make a big loud splash want to see it all the time <laughs> and in terms of you personally after working so hard to make this happen how did you feel on the day the museum opened did you feel embraced you know I have had a fantasy in my head for about five years and it was what it was was that there was on the first reception we got to the end of the night and we've closed the doors we've said goodbye to everybody and Myself, like my husband, and a few key staff and volunteers, like the people closest to what we've been doing, gathered, like having a drink in the gallery afterwards. And when that happened, it was like the doors closed, and I was like, right, let's get a couple of bottles of wine, and let's go and sit on the floor in the other room, and let's just soak it in. And uh, So it was literally your dream come true? It, it was... Actually, literally, my dream come true. And I, I, I had this overwhelming sense that, of what a privilege it is to be in a moment where you go, I've been fantasizing about this moment, and I've been fantasizing about this moment in this space with these people, and here I am. Uh, indescribable. You've mentioned your 14-year-old self wanting to be embraced. Did you feel embraced? Oh, God, yes. Good. Fantastic. And how about, you know, you also mentioned right at the beginning that the progress that's been made has happened relatively quickly and could be taken away. Mm. Do you think with the museum and the momentum behind it, there's less chance? Do you feel quite secure that things aren't going to be taken away? I sometimes have moments when I feel terrified and then I have moments when I think, the progress we've made is secure now. No, no, the, the progress we've made is never secure because the people who don't want us to have made progress will fight whatever fights they can fight to make it happen. We can celebrate, but we mustn't allow complacency 
Totally. What I was hoping to do was to celebrate <laughs> your contribution. And what I was going to say was, do you think things are a bit more secure with this building and the museum being so loud and proud? And I hope so. But I think the, 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 the best I can say is you do the thing that you can do. And this is the thing that I can do to contribute to that, I hope. Joseph Galliano, thank you very much. Oh, brilliant. Thank you, Matt. Right, that's about it for this week. Thanks very much to my guest, Joseph Galliano, here at Queer Britain. Drop me a line on social media if you've enjoyed the show or you've got something you want to say. We're on at Virgin Radio UK and I am on at Matt Came Writer. And please do use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. Matt Kane Meets will be back next week. The Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, celebrating every colour of the rainbow.